0: My name is Steve Heilig, and I want to welcome you all here on behalf of Commonweal. And I'm just curious, who, I won't say who has, who among here has, this is their first time at Commonweal? Oh, good. Well, there are some newsletters back here and on some of the seats here as well. You can get an idea of what we do. Been around for a long time since the 1970s doing all kinds of environmental health work and health work, cancer health program, and many other things. And... Just in the last year or so, we started a series of talks related to end of life and death and dying, and this one today we're very pleased to have. It's the end of this particular series, but we're going to plan some more and do more here. So it's obviously a very lovely day out, and I'm pleased that you were able to come over here. Our uh, speaker today is actually an old friend of mine and a teacher of mine, and has, in fact, goes back, I was thinking this morning, 15 years. Um, And 15 years ago, I had been for about 10 years very deeply enmeshed in the HIV epidemic in San Francisco, partly by chance of having moved to San Francisco when it was starting to explode. So I spent a lot of time as a public health semi-official at that point, uh, dealing with a lot of issues, and then started actually spending a lot of time with patients who were uh, often in the end... Of their own lives because there was really little to no effective treatment and I heard at that point a lot about a hospice program that was founded and based on Buddhist principles but I didn't spend any time there although I did send some patients there and then I had just by chance a uh, too-close encounter with a semi-truck in the street in San Francisco and had my own near-death experience this was in 1996 And when I returned after a very brief timeout, first time out of consciousness and then time out of work, and I came back and there was an invitation on my desk from somebody I knew saying, you really ought to think about doing this training at the Zen Hospice Program. And I didn't really think about it. I figured this is a message, you know, I'm back. So I filled out the application and I went down to this lovely mansion down in the uh, Hayes Valley area uh, of San Francisco to be interviewed about doing the training, and uh, was accepted, and then thought, it's a big commitment. I don't think I want to do it. And it was actually involved a couple of all-day weekends, and a lot of nights went on for a number of weeks, and then you had to commit to at least a year of spending at least one day of the week as a volunteer in one of a number of hospice settings in San Francisco. And I would just say that that training was such a powerful experience. It was led by uh, Frank and staff at the Zen Hospice, which he had started in uh, 1987. And it was such a powerful experience that it was... I mean, it changed my life, and I found that many people who had been there for a period of time, it really changed their life as well. Some people couldn't handle it, and some people found that it was revolutionized their thinking about life and death and maybe after death and so forth. And Frank, after 18 years there, it was like the Zen Hospice was a child, and so at 18 it became legal and he... Uh, spun it off into the world and went on to move on to found something else called the Meta Institute, which is kind of like a doctoral program in end-of-life uh, caregiving studies. Rachel Remen, one of our esteemed staff members here at Commonweal, is part of it and many others. So we worked hard at getting a whole number of people to do series of talks here, and uh, Kira Epstein, who was here as part, put this on and... Where's our recorder here? There he is, Ken. Uh, these are the people who have been very uh, responsible for putting this on, and Susan Braun, our director, is back here as well. You'll meet some of these people here. But today we're going to hear a presentation and then a bit of a, some uh, interaction today with Frank Ostasescu, who is not only a speaker who travels the world teaching about this and has been honored by the Dalai Lama, for example, but somebody that I consider a living bodhisattva for our time. And if you don't know what that is, see, he's shaking his head. That proves it. If you don't know what that is, we can talk about that later. But please welcome Frank Ostaseski.
1: So uh, these are very kind words by Steve, yeah? Not quite sure who he's talking about, actually. But I'm glad to be with you in any case. Really happy to be with you. I have a great uh, fondness for Common. We'll have for more than 20 years now. Lots of dear friends here. And I've always admired and valued the work that uh, uh, has been done here. So it's nice to be able to make a small contribution to that. Uh, Steve told you a little bit about my background. I, I always felt... Well, really, that my work was primarily first and foremost about trying to establish a model about what mindful and compassionate care of the dying would look like. You know, that, that's really what I wanted to do, you know. And, um, you know, in the beginning of Zen Hospice, we didn't have any kind of plan, really, to speak of. We just thought that it was this natural match between people who were cultivating what we called the listening mind in meditation practice, or the listening heart, we could say, and people who needed to be heard at least once in their life, people who were dying. And so for us, there seemed to be a very natural match there. So beyond that, creating a model of mindful and compassionate care, for me, the other part of it has always been to want to be a catalyst in the culture by sharing with the culture at large the relevance of the lessons learned at a time of dying, the relevance they have for all of us in living a more loving and wise life that we don't need to wait until that time to learn those lessons. And beyond all that, I think for me, it's always been about trying to discover what's true. You know, not some big ultimate truth that some religion has a corner market on, just what's true here and now. You know? And when I'm with people who are dying and I look into their eyes, there is no place to hide. You know, when you look at that gaze there is no place to hide. And so it shows me myself, first of all, in a way like nothing else does. There is, it shows me my holding and grasping and my illusions of separation, uh, all of my uh, habits. And it also shows me something else. It, it shows me um, what I sometimes call an undying love you know, that lives in us, each of us. There's a moment for most of us sitting here and most of us in the culture where we realize or where we're called to be a companion of somebody who's dying. And sometimes um, it arrives when a friend or family member announces to us that they have a life-threatening illness. Um, Some of us make this commitment as part of our professional life or others make it as volunteers. I think for most of it, most of us, it arrives when we see a partner or a parent uh, tripping on their words or over the curb, and we realize, oh, it's coming near, it's coming near. I I think what's important to to say at the beginning of all of this uh, is that you already know how to do this, that it's in your bones, that we've been doing this with each other for millennia. that we know how to do this, that each of us sitting here has the capacity to embrace somebody else's suffering as our own. This is the most natural thing to do. But in the last several decades, we've made of this very natural act something technical and um, overly medical. We've uh, institutionalized this very simple, natural act of caring for one another. How did we do that? How did we get to that place? How did we come to the place where we started to talk about caring for each other as a burden or as an obligation? How did we come to that? I think in part, when we so professionalize care, in a way, we become distant from it. Yeah? And so, we forget. We forget this naturalness. And and in the forgetting, I think we become frightened. Yeah? We become frightened. It's like we, we forgot how normal it is. So I think on a day like today, one of the reasons that I'm so grateful for your coming is that in a way, really, all that we get to do today is remind each other. Remind each other of what we already know. Yeah. And kind of call that forward again. And uh, reestablish our trust in it. Yeah. You know, the activities of taking care of somebody when they're sick or when they're dying, in a way, they're very simple. You know, what do we do? You know, we... Make soup, you know, and change soiled linens. Hold the hand of someone who's frightened. Listen to a lifetime of stories that have been led and are now ending. Nothing special, really. Just simple human kindness. (laughs) Yet in the midst of those really ordinary, everyday activities, there is this extraordinary opportunity. And it's that opportunity I want to speak to today. It's the opportunity to really wake up. You know, whether the the person in the bed or the person making the bed, we are profoundly moved by this encounter. And so we have this opportunity, really, to really wake up to come fully fully engaged with the wholeness of our life. one of the things that I think occurs in this process at least for me is that when I'm uh, so in contact with the precariousness of this life when I really get it you know it's not just death comes at the end of my life but every moment is in the flux in the midst of constant change when I really you know Take that in a visceral way, then I also come into contact with just how precious this life is. and then I don't want to waste a moment. You know then I want to jump into my life with both feet, and you know, I only want to live my life. So it's peculiar even paradoxical that this experience, which of course frightens us all and it's reasonable that it does at times, has this capacity to. Show us this very preciousness of our life. And for me, that's its gift. And I'm not romantic about dying. It's the hardest thing we will ever do. So I don't have some kind of romantic new age notion about dying. I don't, You know, my experience is it's hard. It's really tough. And, you know, there's a labor to it, just like there's a labor to getting born. You know? And in the last few years, I've had two heart attacks and major surgeries and, and been on the other side of the sheets, you know? And I used to think I knew a lot about dying, actually, because of all that stuff that Steve said, you know. But now I don't know very much about it at all, you know. And uh, I think I'm of much more use to people now. So there's just these ordinary activities, right? These very simple things that we can do for one another, and and that. In those activities is this opportunity. And the opportunity is to kind of recognize that um, it's a journey of continuous discovery, that we will never know how it's going to turn out. And so it it will call on us in these ways that we almost can't imagine in a way. It will call forward our helplessness in a way like nothing else will. It'll ask us to face the fragility of our own lives if we're the caregiver, you know. It'll, it'll tear our hearts open, you know. And maybe it's there in the torn open heart that will learn what really serves. That's how it was for me, you know. I literally cut my heart open. But then I really began to understand how to serve. So it is the toughest work that you might ever do in companioning someone you love, especially. Helplessness and insecurity will be your common companions. And because it's this continuous discovery, because it's this ongoing journey, it requires of us a certain kind of courage and, I would say, flexibility. A willingness to move with things, with the dynamic process that we find ourselves engaged with. Um, And for me, it's a kind of mystery that I have to keep living into that requires of me that I um, open and risk and forgive constantly. Those have been my guidelines for myself as I do the work. Um, so, this, so today what, what I want to talk to is not just how do we physically take care of somebody I think you can learn that someplace else I want to talk about what happens in the relationship and what are the characteristics that support that relationship and then enter into a little bit of an experiential process a kind of demonstration if you will that might show us how the time of dying can be conducive, actually, to our waking up. Because we tend to see the dying process as, you know, the the boogeyman. And so I want to talk about that today. So I'll start by saying something that for me feels true, which is that the process of dying, the very process of dying, is in and of itself a sacred process. And by this, I don't mean it's religiously sacred. I don't mean that it's, I don't want to tie it to some kind of tradition. I just mean it's inherently sacred. Just like our lives are inherently sacred. And to recognize the sacred is not so much about seeing new things, like bells and whistles or states of consciousness. That's not how we actually recognize the sacred. recognize the sacred is not about seeing new things. It's about seeing things in a new way. It's about having a different vantage point. So um, at the Zen Hospice, one of our projects was a palliative care service at Laguna Honda Hospital, which is a massive, 1100-bed hospital. Nothing like it this side of Calcutta, actually. It's one of the few publicly owned hospitals. And while it's just been rehabilitated, when we began, there were large open wards of 30 or 40 people to a ward, bed after bed after bed, like a gauntlet of beds when you walk through a ward. And one day I was walking through a hospice unit, which was set up in the same way, and walking down the, um, the beds, there was this older African-American man who was breathing with tremendous difficulty, you know, really, really breathing hard. And he was sweating really sweating up a storm. And so I stopped, you know, and I sat down next to his bed. You know, it was clear to me that he was actively dying, you know. The nurses in the room would recognize chain-stoke breathing, you know. But I just sat down next to him. And I said, "Um, you look like you're working really hard. And he said, yeah, just got to get there. And he pointed up in the air like that. And I said, oh, I said, "Uh, if I promise to keep up, can I go? And he said, yeah. And he grabbed my hand. And I said to him, "Uh, I didn't bring my glasses today, and I really can't see there into the distance. Can you see into the distance? Because I can't see so well. And he said, yeah. And he described for me a sloping kind of hillside coming to a kind of plateau. I said, you want to go? Yeah. And so we walked up this hill. Up to this plateau, and it was a hard walk. You know, he was breathing really hard. He was really sweating up a storm, yeah, and really holding onto my hand, yeah. And when we got to this place, clearly we got to this place of the plateau. You could feel it in him, you know. I said, "Can you see further there into the distance?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "I can't see it. Tell me, describe it to me." And he described for me a little one-room red schoolhouse uh, with three steps and a door. This was a man who was born and raised in Mississippi. I said, you want to go? Yeah. And I could have said to him at this time, you are in Laguna Honda Hospital. You are disoriented times three. This is a result of the brain metastasis and the rocks that you have on board. But actually, none of that was true. What was true is we were going to a little red schoolhouse. Yeah. So we walked. Went up the steps. I said, there's the door. Can you see it? Yeah. He said, you want to go in? Yeah. I said, can I go? I always ask. He said, no. I said, oh, okay. Then then you go. And a few minutes later, he died uh, very peacefully. Yeah? Hmm. To see the sacred is not about seeing new things it's about seeing things in a new way all of us will meet this experience in our own way and we have no idea what it's going to look like what it will feel like what it will taste like you know so all we can do if we're a companion to somebody in that point is to keep trying to not get fixed in any vantage point to keep seeing the sacred to keep seeing with fresh eyes The sacred is not something separate or different than the rest of our life, but rather it's something that's hidden in the ordinariness of our life, actually. And uh, for me, the dying process is a process of uncovering what's hidden. It reveals, it strips away. That's what it is. It's a stripping away process that shows us what was already there, the truth that was already there. It removes the obscurations, the beliefs, uh, the distorted perceptions that have been obscuring the truth. So for me then, at least how I view it, it, it is the time of dying then is a sacred time. And what I mean by that is that it's a time of transformation. It's a time, a process of transformation. Uh, and I think this is really important because we tend to view it in this culture. The way we speak about it is, well, we do the best we could. Or we make the best of a bad situation. That's how we view it in healthcare and even in a lot of hospices. We use that language. We make the best of a bad situation. Oh, my. How did we get to that? How did we take this miraculous, mystical experience and reduce it to making it the best of a bad situation? So for me, then, the process of supporting someone uh, at the end of life, the process of caring for someone, whether that be me as an individual or me as a system, um, for me, then, spiritual support, or I want to call it sacred support or compassionate support, is every bit as important as good pain management or good symptom control. Yet rarely is it done in any kind of meaningful way. And as a result of this, too many people in this culture are dying in tremendous distress and fear. And I actually think we can do something about that. Dying is not predominantly a medical event. And we need to stop treating it as if it were. We need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer but I'm not sure we should let it drive, solely, anyway. That there's so much more to this experience. It's not that medicine is wrong. It's just that the profundity of what we're granting here can't be embraced by any one system, by any one model. So it needs lots of things, it needs lots of models. Any model, the medical model, the Buddhist model, none of them are big enough to completely embrace this experience. (coughs) For me, the process is so much about relationship. You know, it's so much about my relationship with myself, um, with those I love, with the process of dying, with death itself, with God, or however I might name the ultimate kindness, in reality and so then the work of being with someone is a lot about working with those relationships Rachel Remen has a beautiful way of saying it she says um, and that relationship is characterized much more by mystery than mastery it's a beautiful expression I I, would like it a lot but I I would like to adapt it slightly Um, I actually want mastery you know when my, I was known as having heart attacks, when I was going to have to go through triple bypass surgery, I wanted mastery. You know, I frankly didn't give a damn about the surgeon's bedside manner. I wanted the best surgeon I could find who, you know, was exacting in his skill, who was going to be a, get a good night's sleep the night before my surgery, who wasn't going to have an argument with his wife, you know. I wanted mastery. When I'm dying, I want mastery. I want my pain well-managed. I want my symptoms addressed and controlled properly. But that won't be enough. It just won't be enough. Because there's a place in the process where mastery isn't useful. So I want also somebody who's comfortable in the territory of meaning. Somebody who can help me uh, ascertain what the purpose and value of this life has been, what the purpose and value of this process is that I'm in the midst of. So I want somebody who's comfortable in the territory of meaning. But then there'll be a juncture in which meaning falls away. Any of us who've been through this with others and understand this. You know, there's just a juncture where the meaning and the story of our life just no longer has a relevance. You know, we're still trying to play grandma the music that she really loved, you know, or tell her stories about Coney Island, but she's in a totally different place. Grandma's of Coney Island a long time ago. So she's in another place. She's in the territory of mystery. And so I want somebody with me who can be comfortable in this territory, the territory of mystery. This is the territory of unanswerable questions. Yeah. In this territory, when we're providing spiritual support, we're not so much telling people things. We're helping them to discover the truth of their experience, even if it's one we don't agree with. Yeah? What's true now? So I want all of that. I want meaning. I want mastery, meaning, and mystery. And so I think as, as companions to people, we need to cultivate those qualities in ourselves. For me, this spiritual support is very practical. It's not esoteric practices and, and, and existential discussions. It's practical. You know, making chicken soup with great love sometimes. At, at Zen Hospice years ago, we had the um, California president. Of the, America, of the California Atheist Association, come and die with us at Zen Hospice. And I was so happy and proud, in a way, honestly, that he felt he could come and die at the hospice and that nobody was gonna push any dogma. No one was gonna try and convince him of something, you know? It was great. He and I had great conversations. You know, I'd say to him, as I said, almost everybody, so what do you think's gonna happen after you die? Because I'm really curious, you know, I really wanna know because I'm really sure that whatever idea we have about what happens to us after we die, it's shaping the way in which we die. And so I said, what do you think's gonna happen? He said, nothing. I said, nothing? I said, you mean like a dial tone? <laughs> he said, no, not a dial tone, nothing. I said, well, will you have ears to hear, a nose to smell? No, you don't have ears and nose. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, tell me what you mean by nothing. I don't understand. He said, nothing. He said, you know, like the molecules that are me will just mix with all the other molecules in the universe and we'll just be one, like that kind of nothing. I said, oh, that kind of nothing. You know, I thought he was going to be fine. I didn't think I had to do very much. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's very practical. It's about, you know, uh, uh, attending to somebody's religious tradition. Maybe it's, you know, putting a prayer shawl over them or calling the priest to um, give the last rites. You know, sometimes it's about helping someone write a letter that aims to reconciliation or forgiveness. So much of the time, I think it's just sitting still, you know, keeping our mouths shut, honestly. We do way too much talking around the time of people who are dying. We just need to be quieter. I think there's three uh, qualities that are really useful as I've looked at my own experience. And the first of those is the willingness to be compassionately present for suffering. In other words, there has to be room in our minds and hearts and bodies for suffering, that there is suffering. And that we can can allow that aspect, that essential aspect of who we are, our compassionate self, to come forward and, and meet that suffering. The second is um, um, the willingness to release ourselves and others from the limitations of roles. Yeah. When I'm dying, I don't want a role next to me. I want a human being. you know. And the third quality, it's a little more difficult to speak to, but the fir- it has two parts. The first part is a kind of deep and abiding trust in the process of dying itself. Like really trusting dying. You know? And the second part of that is a kind of confidence that we are more than the separate self we've taken ourselves to be. However we might experience that. So for me as a caregiver, as a, a companion, um, I try to embody and work with those three characteristics. I'll I'll say a little bit about the first two, but I mostly want to spend our time on the third. So um, to be compassionately present for suffering. Um, For me, uh, uh, this means that we have to do our homework. This means that we have to look at our own relationship, our own direct experience of what happens for us, when we're suffering, when we're in pain, when we're having emotional or mental suffering. And it's this understanding or contact that enables us to build an empathetic bridge to the other person's experience. Yeah. If we haven't done that homework, if we haven't made contact with our own suffering, it's pretty hard for compassion to emerge because compassion arises in direct response to the presence of suffering, to the openness, to them. Openness to suffering. We can't travel in territory with people that we ourselves haven't explored. And I don't mean by that that we need to know everything about the dying experience to be of service to someone. But I need to know something about how I respond. Partly so I won't get caught in that so much in my experience with the other. And also because... Again, it allows me to build a bridge. I can, from that place, if only, even only imagine. And that's helpful. Um, If I haven't done this, then when I say to someone who's afraid, I understand, you know, and I haven't really looked at my own fear, I don't know what happens when I'm afraid, and I say, I understand, they will know that I'm just guessing. And they will sniff out my sentimentality and my, you know, insincerity. So when I'm working with someone, I have to be looking at my own grief, I have to be looking at my own fear, Um, I have to watch how my own heart closes. Um, There's much more I could say about this, but I want to just make one point about this and then we'll go on. One of the understandings that we have about compassion is that its primary task is to relieve suffering. And that is indeed one of its tasks. However, it doesn't do that immediately. Um, The real power for me of compassion, at least as I've discovered it in my own life, is that it enables us to stay with something that would otherwise be intolerable until a deeper truth reveals itself until the actual causes of the suffering show themselves. And then we can skillfully interact with those causes. So compassion is often thought of as this warm-hearted, kind uh, expression. And that is a dimension of it, but it's much more than that. It's really that capacity that helps us to discover the truth through the experience of suffering. Okay, the second thing I wanted to speak to was the willingness to... um, free ourselves and others from the limitations of roles. Um, uh, Too often, I think, in caregiving, we're not looking to see what serves as much as we are looking to prop up some idea of who we are as a caregiver. And, um, you know, for years I've called this helper's disease, and it's more rampant than, you know, AIDS and cancer and, you know, Alzheimer's all put together. And I'm talking about the ways that we try to distance ourselves from someone else's suffering through our professional warmth or our charitable acts, you know. Um, The attachment to the role of helper is pretty old in most of us. But if we're not really careful, it will imprison us and those we serve. Um, After my surgery, I uh, was in the hospital and, you know, uh, nurses and others would come in to take care of me. And, uh, you know, they were good people, kind people, really, but mercilessly driven by the tasks and the systems in which they worked. I, I was touched all the time in the hospital, but rarely was that touch ever experienced as healing. You know, people had more of a relationship with their instruments that they brought in the room than they did with me. And I think what can happen in this process is that um, as caregivers, whether it's family members or being a professional, what tends to happen is we tend to focus on problem solving. Like when I was in the hospital, I remember waking up this one morning, oh God, I was in so much suffering. I mean, I was in a lot of pain, but also I was in so much suffering because everybody who came in the room, including my friends who I love, you know, and certainly all the staff, they all were future oriented. They were all fixed on how it was going to get better. And while that was meant as a helpful um, kind of comment to me, what it did was leave me, in this moment, and leave me totally alone in the suffering that I had. I just wanted to touch the suffering I had. I had confidence that if I could, my own compassion would rise up. But in a way, everyone wanted to keep distracting me from that. I remember I was like a little kid. I I put on earphones because I didn't want to hear anybody. I said to Vanda, I don't want to talk to anybody today. And I put on my earphones and I got my live e-poll and I walked up and down the hallway listening to the five blind boys of Alabama. I don't know if you know them, but they're a fantastic group, you know. Because I felt like I'd lost contact with my own source. And, And their love of God is so clear and uncomplicated. You know, mine's much more complicated. Theirs was just so clean, you know. So I just listened to them until I could remember. Yeah? And then when I could remember, you know, uh, I was okay. Then I remember I went into the bathroom. I call it the, my monk's cell, the toilet. you know, sitting on the toilet and I just cried and cried. And then you know, people would come in to try and cheer me up and I'd say, please leave me alone, you know. I'm working so hard to get to this. You know, when we're only fixed on problem-solving, what happens is we start to um, encourage a kind of shrinking in the person who's sick. They start to identify with their illness, with their shrinking world, as if it's all they have, actually. Um, and they have this and we have this experience of feeling smaller and smaller and smaller, actually. And so I, I think that what can happen in our problem-solving sometimes is that we can really intensify the fear that's part of this process. As caregivers, it's okay to be problem-solvers, but it's not okay just to be problem-solvers. I think we also have to be portals, portals to a larger possibility. Yeah? When we can do that, then we're really of service. portals to a possibility, a deeper possibility. That's inherent in this process. When we are, uh, how many of you have ever cared for somebody who was sick? I should have asked this. So, most people here. Okay, great. So, you know how it is when you move somebody from the bed to the chair or to the commode or the toilet? Yeah? You lend them. The strength of your back and your arms and your body, yeah? That's what you do. You lend them your your body. Well, we can also lend people our hearts and minds. You know? We can have a kind of, um, we can be a reminder for stability and concentration and calmness. And we can open our hearts in such a way that it might inspire the other person to open theirs we can do that. And when we do that, then I think we become a true refuge, a trustworthy refuge for the other person. When we become a refuge. That doesn't mean that we make everything safe. You know, people have this thing that like, oh, go, we should make it safe for others. I don't know how to do that. Honestly. By, if I th- in other words, if we think that only by managing the conditions we'll make it safe, It doesn't work. Dying doesn't feel safe. You can't manage those conditions. So what I have found is that when I am really uh, present, uh, available, uh, clear in my own self, and I'm with the other, they come toward what is frightening to them. Not because there's no danger but because they won't be left alone in that danger. They have companionship. You know, somebody's there with them. Yeah. So I think that's how we really uh, support uh, this experience of, of some kind of safety. Okay, I want to talk about this, this third one and then we'll do something a little more experiential. Um, so I said that this third one is something like having a deep and trusting, a deep trust in the process of dying. Like, do you actually trust it to do its work? Or do we think it's a mistake? You know, we regard it like it's a mistake, like it shouldn't be happening. You know, like it's been going on for a while now, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of got it down really well, you know? And we've been doing this with each other for millennium. You know, we know how to do this. It's only when we turn our back on that and try and recreate the wheel and say, well, for me, it's going to be really different, you know? And we separate ourselves out from that process that we have such a difficult time with it. So for me, this is mostly about the territory of surrender. And the surrender that I've witnessed at the time of dying, it's not really about letting go or doing something. That's language that we use a lot. Um, it's much closer to like, like a process of initiation or a witnessing that's another way to think about it um, letting go as we generally use the term um, has about it this notion of distancing ourselves from something like setting something down yeah um, surrender for me has this feeling of uh, expansion um it's the experience of being transformed rather than choosing to let go of anything. There's a freedom, but it's not the freedom that comes from distancing ourselves or putting something down. The freedom comes because you're a different person than the, than the one who was enslaved by your um, previous beliefs habits, and definitions. So the dying process is a stripping away process that strips away all this. I was on the Oprah show once. It was right after the events of 9-11, and, and Oprah asked, um, was doing a whole beautiful series, actually, on helping people address fear, because there was so much fear in the country. And, and so they invited me on, and I came on to talk to Oprah. You know, I didn't know what the hell I could contribute to this, but I, I went on. And... Uh, And I said pretty much what I'm saying to you, you know. You know, I said, you know, Oprah, we need to learn to sit down with the fear, you know, to have a cup of tea with it, sit down with death, get to know it really well like an old friend, you know. And she said to me, why would we want to do that? (laughs) And uh, I said, you know, Oprah, everything we are, I said, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, you're a talk show host, you know. I said, it's all going to go. Those boots, Oprah, I said, they're going to go too, you know. It's all going to go. And then who are we? Yeah? So this, in this surrendering, something in us that's always been in us, that's been hidden in us, kind of comes forward. That's a way to think about it. In, in, the, in the letting go, we use that language a lot, and, and, and I, it confuses me, to be honest. I don't know really who does that letting go. You know. In surrendering... I don't really feel like it's so much something I choose. I feel like it chooses me. And in the process of surrendering, there's this feeling of coming closer to something, coming closer to something that I've already known. Um, like I remember this woman said to me once, Oh, Frank, I feel like I am emptying myself out so God can enter. It's extraordinary. Well, this other woman, a young woman, Connie, said to me once, she said, Oh, Frank, if I had known that the silence was this beautiful, I would have spent a lot more time in quiet. You know? Hmm. So, it's this experience of uh, what happens when this stripping away process occurs that I want us to explore. So, in order to do this, um, we're going to need to create some chaos. I actually think this is a really important part of the dying process—chaos. You know, Elizabeth years ago, who was one of my mentors, Kubler-Ross. She laid out those famous five stages. You remember? She never meant them to be linear, and you know, people have distorted them over the years. But um, um, you know, the final one was acceptance. You remember that? And you know, hospices and healthcare agencies have. You I've know, really abused this one terribly, you know. It's like I've been at team meetings in hospices where they've said, patient reached acceptance. Like as if it was a box to check off, you know. And it was all done now. You know, we're finished. You know, I don't know. Acceptance for me doesn't always feel like a joyful state. You know, your marriage breaks up, you accept it, but it doesn't mean you're happy about it. So for me, what I've witnessed a lot is after acceptance comes some other kind of state. And and I think of it as chaos, deep chaos. There's a sense of self that we've known, you know. It can only go so far. It can only take us so far in this process. And then when it gets challenged in a big way, it feels very, very chaotic. And um, it's in that chaos that a deeper something other than acceptance arises, that's where surrender starts to show up. So I, I wanted to um, kind of do a, a demonstration in a way. What I, I, I want to talk about is what the transpersonal psychologists, Wilbur and Washburn most especially, speak of as you know, um, the arc of development. Yeah. And I thought it might be a useful thing to try and speak about uh, how we develop as human beings, how we mature as human beings, and how the dying process can actually help us in that process, accelerates that process, supports that process. So in order to do this, and, um, um, we're going to have to make a little chaos. We're going to have to move, some of you, and those of you in the first two rows, if you would just move your chairs to the side, and then you can sit on them on the side or take other chairs. And for the audience that's listening, you'll know that we're just creating some chaos in the room. And if you'd like to do this at home, you you could try this at home. Okay. So, what we've done here, uh, for the people that are listening in, is we've created an open space in the front of the room where I'm going to try and have us develop this arc. If we can move those chairs, everything out of the way. Neil, if you could move those chairs way out of the way, because we're going to need all this open space. And I'm not quite sure how this is going to go, but we'll figure it out. So um, in, in, um, in the Buddhist cosmology, we often speak about what we call the ground of being. And on the ground of being is, we could say, that from which everything arises. Yeah? The big bang and everything. Yeah? The ground of being. So can you see it here as I walk along it? It's right here. Can you in the back, can you see the ground of being here? It's right here. Right this line, right here. Yeah? Everything gets born out of it. Yeah. Everything. So I want to try and um, see if we could demonstrate how this works in our lives. So are there any uh, parents in the room? Yes? Would you like to be willing to be a parent in this display? Can you sit on the floor? Right here? Beautiful. Right there, Lenore, just facing that way. Yeah. And are there any uh, children in the room? Would you mind coming up? And I wonder if you and Lenore could find yourself into an embrace like a mother and infant. Really close. Oh, no, you have to get right in her lap. Oh, no, no, even more in her lap. Laying across her lap. There you go. There we go. There we go. All right. Beautiful. All right. So out of the ground of being, we are all born, yeah? And we're born and the first face of God that we know is our mother. And we don't know that face to be anything different than us. We look, at our, you know, we look at our mother and the mother looks at us and you know, Margaret Mahler talked about dual unity we have this experience of oh, this is me and there's no sense of separation here now the child doesn't know that they're separate in any way they're just one with mom yeah? and we all know this We've all had this, if we've been parents, particularly those of us who've been mothers, we've watched this in our children, we've seen this. You know we, we felt that experience of being one with them. And then there's some juncture, different times, when, you know we pull back from mom and we look at her and we say, "Oh, that's not me." You know we look at the breast and we say, "No, that's not me." or we just see the breast as an object that we want, you know?" And this process starts, where it starts, exactly when it starts, there's lots of debate about this. Yeah? But it begins. So this is the first boundary, the granddaddy of all boundaries, I and other. It starts here, yeah? I and other, yeah? And, um, and then what happens is, no, you can stay. Please stay. You're going to stay for a long time here, so enjoy. <laughs> enjoy this. So in this, um, in this process, and just for our listening audience, we have a mother and daughter who are in an embrace here on the floor. Um, then what happens is mom goes out of the room for a while, right? And baby gets a little scared. And so what does she do? You know, she makes a mental image of mom so that she can feel safe when mom's gone out of the room. That's what she does. Yeah. And uh, pretty soon what starts to happen is we substitute the mental image for the real experience. And so we start to feel this, you can feel like the separation happening here, can't you, from the ground of being, from the, what, that which we never were separate from. And we start to substitute a conceptual framework for that which was um, visceral, we could say. yeah. All right. So this is the first big boundary. Yeah? Now, there's another boundary. Anybody here um, want more space in their life? More space in your life? Yes? Please come then. Yes? Anybody here would like more time in your life? <laughs> Susan, you'd like some more time. Please come up here then. If you would stand right here behind Lenore, that would be great. You're going to be uh, uh, time, right? Space. Space. Oh, you're going to come in. So, Susan, you stand in front then and um, chase them. Okay. And maybe you're going to be um, space. Yeah? Perfect. Perfect. So we have two people representing time and space here. And um, you won't have to keep your arms up all day. Don't worry. It'll be okay. So, um, so I mentioned that baby, the, the baby has this experience. When mom goes out of the room, there's a gap there. It's not just when she goes out of the room, but there's a gap there. Yeah? And how long will it be before she comes back? And will she come back? Is she going to come back? And first, so there's this experience of time and space, the next big boundary that starts to get formed. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of human development here. This is the Reader's Digest version. It's much more complicated than this, but I'm going to give you the highlights. Okay? So time and space, next big boundary. And it's here, actually, that our first fears of dying really start to show up. Yeah? Because it feels like that to the infant. Mom goes out of the room. Is she coming back? I don't know. Will I be okay if she doesn't come back? So this next boundary, time and space, really important, okay? All right, um, let's see. Anybody here um, very smart? Anybody here very smart? <laughs> I know there's one or two people in Bolinas that are smart. Yeah. You are, come on. Anybody here like to exercise? Nobody? Oh, you do, okay, good. If you'll come here, and let's make, a, let's make this as a kind of arc. So Susan, and if you'd move over a little bit. Imagine this like an arc, you go over there, scoot over there, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm saying that to Lenore, if you guys will scoot over a little bit. So I want to just sort of start to see an arc here. All right, so you are, what did you want? Thinking. I'm smart. And you like like to exercise. Okay, so let's go, um, let's maybe um, uh, put your hands uh, opposite each other like that, like against each other, facing side by side. Okay, very good. Yeah, okay. And and you can rest. It's okay. You can rest. So next big, next big boundary, next big boundary that we see, I um, and other. Remember that one. Time and space. Next one, mind and body. Yeah, mind and body. Kind of kind of split, another duality that arises for most of us. We're giving again. Remember, these are the highlights here. It's more complicated than this. But um, think of an 11-year-old girl who's been doing cartwheels. And um, she just is having the best time of her life, and then she begins to develop rest, and she starts holding herself rather rigidly. Yeah. Uh, she starts maybe um, disconnecting a little bit from her body. Or we say to her, you know, we start saying to our children, what are you going to be when you grow up? Who are you going to be? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And we start identifying with our thinking, our conceptual minds, instead of our physical bodies. Yeah? And so the identification starts to change here. I'm right, going to come back to this. There's more to this, of course. But this is the next big duality, yeah? Mind and body. Okay, next uh, duality. Anybody in the room have any secrets? <laughs> any? No, <laughs> you don't have to tell them. I just want to know if you have them. <laughs> you have secrets. Oh, good. Will you please come here?
2: Yeah,
1: All right. If you'll stand right there facing me, that'd be great. And uh, let's see. Um, anybody here in the room have a personality? Uh You have a personality, would you please come? And maybe you'll turn back to back with each other, okay? All right, and if you'll be back to back with this gentleman, we'll have personality and uh, secrets. So let's just think of this um, uh, as Carl Jung's famous persona and shadow, yeah? Uh, As we grow up, um, this process of individuation is occurring, We're recognizing um, what gets us what we need, our love and food and care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We are learning through this process, through a process of conceptualization and individualization to um, uh, put forward what will get us what we need and to repress or suppress what won't get us what we need. And so some things go unconscious, some things remain conscious. We like to say the unconscious is a bit like icebergs. A lot, more of, a lot more of what's driving our life is below the surface than the little part that we see. So we have this next big split, uh, persona and shadow. Yeah? I repress that in me, which does not, is not acceptable to the, to the situations in which I find myself. Yeah? So these are the big uh, ticket items. And these are the big dualities that, that form it in our process of development, and they're not a mistake. We tend to view them as a mistake. They're absolutely necessary. We need this to grow as individuals. Because does anybody here meditate? Yeah, Come on. Would you sit, sit there? Okay, good. Perfect. See. that's why. You understand how it works now? <laughs> this is how it works all this individuation, all this stuff, so that I can know myself as an individual. And in that process, I develop also my capacity to self-reflect, to really look on my life, to look at my life and understand it, to integrate those separations and dualities which have so characterized my life up until now. Yeah? And so, I don't know when this happens. For some of us, it happens at 22. For some of us, we're still waiting for it to happen. <laughs> You know, where we find ourselves being able to integrate these kind of splits that we've had, yeah? All right. Now, let's um, build the rest of the, of the arc. So, excuse me. Um, so we need uh, two more volunteers to come here. Can two more people come up? Any two? Thank you. We need one more to be with him. Please. And if you'll uh, stand next to her, we fa- your back to her. Oh, great, good. And if you'll come right there, and maybe you could just shake hands. That would be good. All right? All right. Um, persona and shadow, yeah? What we're going to do is We're going to do the reverse now. Can we get two more people? If we can have two more people come up. Any two? Yeah, good, come on up. And I'm going to talk about these in a minute. Right now, we're just building the arc. So two people here. And could you join them? Thank you. And let's see, we are uh, mind and body, so how about arm-in-arm arm with each other? There we go. And if we can have two people right here. Would you come? Beautiful. Would you be willing to come? Oh, terrific. And if you'll be right there. And you are uh, time and space, aren't you? So you need to... Uh, how would we do that? How could we convey time and space meeting? How about um, uh, uh, an embrace? Uh, yeah, Some that's it. That's good. That's perfect. And then... Um, Uh, Let's see. Um, uh, Let's see. Kara, why don't you come up here? And if you could sit right here on the line of the ground of being just opposite Lenore, I'll explain in a minute. If you'll just sit down facing that way. Thank you. Okay, so now you see the whole path of human development. Is it pretty clear to you now? It's not clear yet? Oh, I'll fill in some details. Uh, um, what I'm sugge- what this is not my model, this is Wilbur and Washburn's model, and um, uh, they, they speak about this second half as the path of return, the path of return, returning to that which we began from, but knowing it, consciously knowing it. So we have here persona and shadow. Remember persona and shadow over here? They're not in much relationship here. They're in relationship, but they're not recognizing each other. Here they're beginning to recognize each other. What I want to speak about here, not so much is about the transpersonal model, but how dying, the dying process can support the, um, this process. So persona and shadow. Um, one of the things that can happen for people when they are um, coming to the end of their lives is that this process, is a process of repression. And it takes a certain amount of energy, literally, to do that. Um, In the dying process, we either don't have that energy, or we are no longer invested in that process. And so the cap comes off. And when the cap comes off, what has been buried bubbles up to the surface cap comes off in lots of different ways in our life, of course. Meditation practice is an example of which sometimes the cap comes off and unconscious material floats to the surface, or it just bubbles up in the course of our everyday life. But it commonly happens here in the dying process. So an example would be um, a gentleman in our uh, hospice who was the most elegant Italian man I'd ever met. He, came, he used to dress every day in the hospice in a suit and tie. Actually, silk ties, beautiful. And he brought his china and his crystal to the hospice, and we'd have dinner parties for his friends. Beautiful guy, elegant man, really elegant man. And his family was very proud of him. He was the patriarch of the family, etc. As he got sicker, he started to swear like a sailor. I mean, he just had the foulest mouth. You can't imagine what was coming out of this guy, right? And of course, everybody was really upset by this. I was delighted. I thought, fantastic, the process is starting to happen. You know, The caps come off. You know? Now, this is, obviously can be really a disturbing time for family members and friends. And it's frequently something we medicate, actually. And sometimes that's the appropriate action. But if we could also understand that this is happening, it might be helpful. So the opposite would be Gene. Um, uh, Jean. Jean, um, came to us um, from prison. Uh, He was on compassionate release. He was dying of cancer. And um, what other people didn't know and I knew is that he had stabbed his sister 17 times and killed her. And I didn't tell everybody else about this. And uh, he came to stay with us at the hospice. He was a ferocious guy. He'd lived in institutions all his life, since the time he was in an orphan, all the way through prisons. He'd been in institutions. And so at the hospice, when we would try to help him, he wouldn't accept any help. Uh, he would fall frequently. He you know, broke his bone one dime, and he would get all banged up. And I'd say, you know, Gene, why don't you let us give you a hand? You know, no way, man, no way, like this. And so we, you know, just were patient with this. We didn't force anything. And one day I was out in the back porch smoking cigarettes with Gene, and I said, uh, How's it going? He said, oh, I let the girls help me today. I said, the girls, what do you mean? The girls were the nurses and the volunteers. I said, what do you mean? He said, I let them help me. What would you do? I let them help me get a shower. I couldn't get in the shower. I needed a bath. That's oh, all good for you, you know? And what started to happen for Gene was this kind of kindness came forward in him. Now, if he had showed this kind of kindness in prison, he'd have been killed, you know? So, but here in the safety of the environment in which you're in it could come forward. I was at Zen Hospice, I think Steve said, for 18 or 20 years. The only one who ever threw me a birthday party was Gene. And it was beautiful. Oh, God. He he saved up his uh, SSI money. You know, he didn't have any money, Gene. He saved up his money. And he got a cake. He, he wanted to get a stripper to come out of the cake. That's what he really wanted. But the, the, the volunteers told him that wasn't a good idea. So he just got a cake and, he, and, and some presents for me. And it was all him. He told it to his total surprise party. And I came in and I was completely surprised. It was the most beautiful gift, just beautiful. And uh, this unbelievable beauty, which he had had to repress, was now coming forward. Yeah persona and shadow. When the cap can't be kept on, or there's no interest in keeping the cap on, the unconscious material comes forward. Mind and body, remember mind and body? Yeah. Um, In the dying process, sometimes you are in long-term illness at least, you are in bed sometimes for weeks, sometimes months on end. And your relationship with your body, anybody who's lived through illness here can say this, your relationship to your body changes dramatically. You know, uh, People might feel very betrayed by their bodies. Um, all kinds of things are going on in your body is making crazy sounds and doing all sorts of uncomfortable things. And the relationship with the body really starts to shift. I remember there was a fellow uh, in the midst of the AIDS epidemic who was skinny as a rail. He weighed about 85 pounds. And he was completely covered from head to toe with Kaposi sarcoma, uh, uh, lesions all over his body. And, um, and I knew him quite well. And I said, uh, and he'd been in bed for almost three months. Yeah. And um, so I said to him, when was the last time you saw yourself naked? And he said, oh, it's been a long time, you know. And I said, would you like to? And he said, yeah. And I got one of those mirrors that you put on the back of your closet, you know, door those long, thin mirrors. And I had it at the bottom of the bed, and I started to lift it up to show him his body. He lay naked in the bed. It's just he and I in the room. And as I lifted up the mirror, more of his body became revealed in the mirror, and he could see himself, really, for the first time in maybe months, you know. And he did the most amazing thing. He looked at the mirror, and he started to laugh. And he said, that's not me. And it wasn't denial. You understand? What he was saying is, that's not all that I am. That's not all that I am. So this, this, this whole split that started to happen over here, my mind and body, it starts to shift, actually, in the dying process. Yeah? People have a much more intimate relationship, actually, with their body when they're dying than they did before. Time and space. yeah, Time and space. Remember time and space over there? Where's space? There's space. OK, good. Time and space. The um, uh, sense of time changes when you've been in bed for a long time, long-term illness. And also, um, you know, we have all these syndromes. We have a syndrome called Sundowner syndrome that you, some of you may be familiar with, where people mistake nighttime for daytime. These kinds of conf- whole sense of time gets really confused in the process. And also people's spatial experience gets really changed in the process. Do you ever watch somebody in bed reaching out into space, you know? in the final hours of their life. Some of that's the roxanol, or the morphine that's on board, but some of it's just their sense of spatial understanding is really shifting. Yeah? Um, I've been with people who would tell me about unbelievable journeys they would go on. you know, And they weren't, you know, they weren't just mental fabrications. They had a sense that they were actually going on a journey, that their sense of space was no longer just bounded by this room. We have that in meditation practice quite a lot, where people With any kind of concentration, your sense of expansiveness extends beyond the room that you're in, the building that you're in. And we have a feeling of much bigger space. And we know ourselves actually, to be that space. Not just to be, there is a lot of space. I know myself to be that space. And this can happen in the dying process as well. It's supportive. It's conducive. It's helpful to these experiences occurring, if it's properly supported. And we'll come back to that. Okay, remember I and other over here, mom and? And child, mother and child, mother's the first face of God that we see. The child doesn't experience himself or herself as different than that, separate from that. Well, there's another opportunity, but you have to turn that way, Kira, because that's the ground of being. Remember the ground of being? It's here. So there's this opportunity for us to know this experience, not just to be in it, swimming in it, as the child is swimming in it, but to know this ground of being consciously enter it and know it. Now this doorway is open to everybody but not everybody walks in. In other words, not everybody wants to go You know, people get stuck over here in this process. Not everybody goes through this. But it's an opportunity. So a friend of mine uh, I remember going to his house one day a gay man uh, who was dying of AIDS and he, I came to his house and his uh, pants were down around his ankles and he was sitting on the commode crying. And I said, oh, sweetie, what is it? What's, what's, what's the matter, you know? And he said, Tibetans. Like that. I said, the Tibetans? <laughs> now, this guy didn't give a damn about the Tibetans, trust me. I mean, he only cared about whether you had a cute butt and, and, and you know, whether or not you, you were at the right party. This was his life. And he didn't give a beans about that kind of stuff. But in this moment, something had shifted. And what had happened for him is that this process had been going on. And, um, and he began to recognize, actually, that this suffering that he'd been in wasn't just his. That it was somehow shared. And he couldn't even articulate how that was. He just started feeling waves of other people's suffering. Not like he was psychic. It wasn't anything magical. It was just, oh, I get it. There's suffering in the world. And I'm, part, I'm experiencing the suffering just as they are. And so I begin to understand that I'm not separate from them. And that was for him the connection through suffering. But when we make that connection, it doesn't just live in suffering. It lives in other dimensions of our life. So not only is your suffering my suffering, but your joy is also my joy. And so the sense of separation that has so characterized our life begins to break down. And there's a feeling of, oh my, I'm not separate. And I can know that. I can know that immediately. And truthfully, in this moment, not not some big religious experience, just the truth of this. Not because there's a new discovery that's happened, it's because there's been such a stripping away that nothing's obscuring the view anymore. It's not being clouded by my beliefs and concepts, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, now, that's the arc. Now, I wanna be really careful. Of all the trouble Elizabeth got into. She warned me. You know, she said, whenever you say something to people, you know, be careful. They're gonna do that. They're gonna put you into a linear process. This is not a linear process. It doesn't go like this. It doesn't go this smoothly. You see, for example, people leave. (laughs) You know, know, we step away from ourselves in this process. So some of us, you know, these, these things kind of explode onto the surface of our awareness is a better way to think about it, as opposed to thinking of it as a linear process. Yeah? We all go through this. We don't all, all get to here. Some of us get stuck here. Yeah? But this is the process of human development. You know, the abridged version, of course. I'm giving you the really, as I said, the Reader's Digest version. What I want to draw your attention to today is that the process of dying can support this development. It can support. It's conducive. It's helpful. But we need somebody with us who recognizes it. You know? Who says, yeah, you're cursing like a sailor. Okay. You know? It's like this woman, Nina, I remember. She would wake up in the middle of the night with unbelievable nightmares. Terrifying nightmares. And so, as a result, she was prescribed Halidol, antipsychotic drug. And uh, when she came to the hospital, she was still on the Halidol. So I said, well, let's just try something. Let's just sit with her. Let's just assign a volunteer to her. So I was the volunteer for the first few nights. So I just I would, she'd wake up at midnight, and I'd put my hand through the bed rail, and I'd hold her hand, and I'd say, you know, you know you're waking up now. You're in between worlds now. Yeah, that's what I would say. You're in between worlds now, and you might there might be things that are frightening. You're, you're not alone in that. And within a week, we were able to take her off to halidol. Yeah. Now I don't I don't think we did anything magical, nor you know, don't do we did we try to break some medical protocol. It wasn't that we thought that was better than this. It was just that if it wasn't necessary, let's not use it. Now we use morphine in industrial strength, 55-gallon drums of morphine, you know. I I like morphine. I think it's a really good drug, and I'm really glad that we have it in this culture. I was supposed to go to Zimbabwe to do some work, and can you imagine the whole country ran out of morphine? Whole country, yeah. We have it, thank God we have it. Yeah, it's a useful, skillful, as are many of the other things in our medical supply cabinet. But our humanity is what I want to lead with first. You know, I have lots of tools in my tool belt. You know, I have a whole toolbox full of them. But if I place them down between myself and a patient, one of us are likely to trip over them. Yeah? So I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity. And then, then we can find what tools needed or necessary in the process. Yeah? So please don't think that this is, this is as simple as this. It's not. It's more complicated than this. Uh, there are multiple other factors that are going on in these situations, disease processes, et cetera, et cetera. However, if we could just hold this also in our consciousness, that this also is happening, I think it would be helpful. And I think we wouldn't le- abandon people so easily, and we wouldn't reach in to fix so quickly. And we might trust the process a little bit more. Yeah? So I want to thank all these people for... Uh, for standing up here, appreciate that. okay. So now, I've done an awful lot of talking here, and I apologize for going on too long. What I wanted to—excuse me. What I want to do is um, now sort of engage all of you in a discussion on any of this, and, and please understand that. Um, you don't have to agree with anything I've said. Um, I'm happy to, to uh, include your disagreements as well. But um, um, I wanted just to paint a picture for us so that we could see kind of, oh, that's how it could be. You know, could be that way. Yeah. We could support that. Yeah? So um, with that, I think I'll just um, we'll open it up for discussion and see what you think or feel or about anything I've said so far something. so. Sorry. Okay. When
2: you were talking about roles and fear, mm-hmm. and you were talking about when you're sitting on the commode crying. Uh, yes. I was. I was curious um, if you could reflect more on that fear in terms of your own experience when you were. Where did you was? You feel like you said you felt like you were lost. Yes. And and uh, did you have a sense of where that where the fear was taking you or uh, could you reflect
1: on that? Just a yeah, so yeah. I think what you're talking about is that when I was a patient when I was in the hospital, when I felt like I'd lost contact um, for me uh, when I'm in contact with what's actually going on when it's going on then I feel like I have more contact with what's true when I'm only in my conceptual framework for example I don't feel like I'm on such steady ground so in the situation in the hospital um, I felt like I wasn't really in contact with what was going on I could there was all this stuff happening to me but I wasn't actually able to attend to it and so I was emotionally swept away quite a lot I didn't feel like I had access to the resources, but I, I needed help in staying present, actually. And, um, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, your feet are dangling over some big crevice, and you're not sure if you're going to find any solid ground. And that's the fear. It feels like that. And so... Um, you know, there were all manner of stories that would come. Fear, well, will I ever recover from this? Will any of these things get better? Um, um, will I be able to re-inhabit my personality as I had known it before? Will I be able to function in the world? Those were all the stories about the fear, but they were just stories. The fear itself was just, uh, I, don't, I can't make real contact with myself. That's what really was scary. And once I could make contact, in this case with the suffering, then I felt like something more real was there and I could be, I was more available. When people were, fu- when, when the whole system was future oriented, it was very difficult to stay present. Yeah. So, yeah, please. So be, because of that, you did not have somebody
0: to be a, a companion mm-hmm. for you with that. With that, you had said everybody else yeah. was a future oriented um, mm-hmm. state of so you really
1: were alone with that. Well, I had other people, including dear friends, who loved me. And, but they all wanted me to get better, too. <laughs> and there was only one or two people who could say, this is really sucks, huh? This is really awful. Right now, this is awful. And those people were a tremendous asset to me. They were a great support. When I had one, just one, even one person like that who was willing to just be with what was true. Um, I I have confidence in suffering. I have confidence that my own being will respond appropriately to the presence of that suffering, if I allow it, if I can make contact with it. My own being will rise up, its compassion will rise up. So yeah, I felt totally alone. And you know, um, without telling you horror stories, The night of my surgery, I was in the CCU unit. You know, I was intubated, and um, friends were there looking after me, and it looked like everything was going to be okay, so everybody went home. And um, that night, about 2 or 3 in the morning, uh, the the turners, I call them, the guys who come in, these big bruiser guys who come to turn you in bed, they came in the room, and um, they grabbed me like a sack of potatoes to turn me, and I got really frightened. And I remember just waving my arms and, like, trying to make sounds. I couldn't speak. And they just looked, they stopped and they looked at me and they completely belittled me. I mean, they just just started kind of it felt like being a kid in a schoolyard again. They were just mean bullies. And they flipped me over like a sack of potatoes and they took the call bell and they hit it between the mattress and the springs on the bed. And then they left there and they said, see how you like that? When they left. It was scary. Now, I say that um, these guys were the lowest, they were the lowest place on the totem pole. They they have been working in a system where there's a tremendous amount of horizontal hostility and institutional violence, actually. And and they're the recipient of it. And big surprise, they're going to pass it on to the people that they take care of. After that, my friend said, no more, you're not here. You don't get to be here alone anymore. Someone stayed with me then after that. And that was really a huge help. When they went to take the tubes out, a respiratory therapist walked in the room and said, let's see if we can, let's pull out those tubes and see if you can breathe. That's what he said, walking in the room, that's how he announced himself. And I could feel that my, they damaged my diaphragm in the surgery. And so I could feel that my left lung wasn't working, that it wasn't really inflating. And I shook my hand like this, no, 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 not ready, you know. And I said, oh, no, 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 everybody's scared. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Don't even think about it. I'm going to pull it up. And we won't even know it. And oh, boy, I was scared. And you know, I'm good at this stuff. I practice this stuff. I practice being calm and everything. You know. And um, I have my, my very dearest friend was with me. And uh, he's a meditation teacher. And he said, Frank, find your breath. Like that. And I couldn't. I couldn't find it. He said, I shook my head. He said, then sense your body. Sense your body. And I went to try and sense my body, and I, it was, there was so much fear, I couldn't sense my body. I mean, I could feel the fear rushing through me, but I couldn't fear any place kind of calmness. And then I pointed to my ear, and he understood, because he was very present. I'm very grateful to him for being so present. And he came over, and he just um, sat by my ear and breathed. And for a while, I just listened to his rhythm of his breath and the touch of his breath, and it became my lifeline. It was uh, the stability that I needed in chaos. And my son, who was in his late 20s, came over, and he put his hand on my uh, chest, and it was like a conduit to God. There was so much love in his touch. And those two things became the stability that I needed. And then I could say to the guy, okay, you know, now take it out. And it was fine. Yeah. One calm person in the room can make all the difference. Something else, other things that you wanna speak to? Yeah, please.
2: I may need your help
3: is helping me express this idea. Okay. When the patient is um, with the painkillers, mm-hmm. and the caregiver is with with the patient, mm-hmm. and you know from previous experience That it's very likely that they're not gonna remember any of the moment. We still hold our peace and our composure. Give me some insight. Uh Share it.
1: Yeah. Well, I I don't have a, I don't have many um, ideas about how we should be in the room because. I don't think that works awfully well. We're going to be how we are. I do think that there are, and I said this in my talk, that I think there are ways that are helpful and supportive of a patient, but we may not be able to do that, particularly if there's somebody we love. We may need to get somebody else to help us do that. So I just want to say that that this process will overwhelm us at times and not to have any expectation that we should be able to do it this perfectly. So one of the things that used to happen at Zen Hospice is I would say to family members, We're gonna take care of everything else so that you can do what you need to do, what you can do best, which is love this person. Yeah? And we'll take care of everything else. So, uh, this is awful hard, this is hard work. Um, I I think it is important to recognize, I'll just say from my own experience, there were many things I don't remember about my experience in the hospital that friends or, or Vanda have helped me to understand afterwards. Um, but uh, it's really important that they didn't use that as an excuse <laughs> to not continually be present with me, right? In other words, their presence was really important, more important maybe even in those moments when I felt, when I felt swept away. Yeah. So um, I think we're going to be human beings in this thing. That's really important. Don't expect that we're going to be able to be the perfect anything. We'll be perfectly who you are, exactly who you are, and that will be, you know, that'll be just enough. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, oh, please, go ahead
0: question that's, that's coming up for me that, that actually came up at the last talk I was at uh, mm-hmm. last month, and it, mm. it has to do with um,
1: um, pain yeah. and pain medication. Yeah. And you know, you said thank God for more pain. I agree. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm, I'm coming at this from maybe somewhat of a naive place, but. But I just have a question around that because I've had different experiences, we all have experience with pain mm-hmm. and how we're going to medicate and or not and alleviate that mm-hmm. and lean into that pain as a form of suffering also. Um, and I've worked as a caregiver and I wanted that pain medication to work when she was in pain. Yeah. It was distressing to me. And sure. um, my own very brief experience in a hospital, I refused refusing pain medication and the nurses were coming unglued. Yeah. It was really, they, they were practically begging me, please take this yes. medication, this is, this is all we know how to do, mm-hmm. and you're telling us we can't do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering about that, and my, my little bit of familiarity with Ivan Hitch, if you, if you know him, who refused you know refused. I, I talked to him about it, yes. You did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
1: so I just would love to hear your yeah. comments on that. Oh, yeah. um, golly. Well, there's a, first, just it's really important to see the cultural bias that's there around drugs and pain. You know, that there should not be pain, for example, is a bias that we have, you know. And we both have this incredible dependency and fear of any kind of medication. So, those two things, those are big, big factors in this discussion. Yeah? Um, my own experience is that most people, uh, cannot do the other work that we've just been talking about here if they're in unrelenting pain. Um, it's not... Because the pain is the only thing that's in front of them, oftentimes. And so they can get really good at just staying with that pain, but they don't, not much more development happens than that. That's true when I'm teaching meditation retreats and students come to me and they're not even in severe pain, their, their knees are hurting. And sometimes they get so fixated on that knee pain that they don't open to any other experience. And so we have to help them to relax, for example. Um, so the first thing I would say is that if, um, if people uh, are in that kind of stress around their pain, it's not usually very helpful. <laughs> and that we should do what we can to try and eliminate that pain. Now, usually what happens there, that's, that's where we get into that gray area. Because then what happens is we want to eliminate all pain. And that's where we oftentimes over-medicate people. And I think that... Um, at its best, when it's at its best, hospice has elevated pain to a high art form. And we can titrate that medication appropriately to give people uh, clarity of mind while also having some degree of relief from their pain. Um, but that takes some skill. Uh, not everybody has it. And just because people work for hospice doesn't mean they have it. And so my own view is if you've got somebody, the hospice worker is coming in and they don't have that skill set, you find another hospice worker. Really, it's, it's an art form, and, and it needs to be done well. Um, uh, we have concerns about, oh, if someone's on pain medication, they won't be able to do the work of the dying process. Um, my friend, John Halifax, who I teach with a lot, she, she asked this question of the Dalai Lama. She said, well, basically the same question you're asking, you know. And, and um, he was very good. He said, oh, the substrata of mind, he's speaking about the substrata of mind, is not affected by this medication. In other words, who we actually are. You know, there's dimensions to who we are. Our Cognition is one dimension, but that's not the only dimension of who we are. The substrat of our consciousness, he said, is not affected by this medication. So in other words, consciousness continues to know. And so my simple way of understanding that is this. Um, Have you ever been confused? Yes, good. Do Do you know you were confused? Right. So there was some part of you that knew you were confused. Yeah, that wasn't confused. Yeah. Now you might have been orient not orienting toward that. You might have been orienting more toward the part that was confused or troubled, et cetera, et cetera. But I just want to point out that there is some part of us in those situations that often isn't confused, and the same same is true of uh, uh, the introduction of drug experiences as well. Yeah. So um, I think that this really has to be handled in negotiation or. Um, in conversation with the patient and his or her family, um, as opposed to just following protocols. I've been with people who chose to be in a fair amount of pain. I've also, I remember being with one, I won't say who, a very, very famous Zen teacher, you know, everybody would know. And they called me and said, He's in unrelenting pain, he's screaming, and I said, Up the morphine. But he's the Zen teacher, I said, Up the morphine. <laughs> How much more should I give him? I said, This much more. <laughs> really? Yes. And call me back in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes they called me back. And said, "Oh, he's much more relaxed now." <laughs> yeah. So I think we also have to watch not impose our ideas on others around this issue, particularly around this issue. Question, if you're finished. Yeah. I think so. um,
2: well, this is actually just fresh for me because I just two weeks ago
3: spent much of a week with someone who passed away uh-huh. two weeks ago. And um, where did they go? Well, you know, she, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, anyway, what um, you talked about, you know, the heart being ripped open or whatever on the part of the companion. Yes. Like I had that experience for sure. Yes. And um, going out and about to get from her house, even to go to do a job or something like that, yeah. was so weird. Yeah. And strange to even interface with people that weren't in this incredibly precious sacred space, Yes. or didn't seem to be, you know, didn't seem to know they were <laughs> at that moment, and I actually was like, oh, I need to ask someone who would know, how do you do this? How do you integrate a life between the times that you're with yeah. the person who's in that
1: yeah. space? Yeah. Well, may I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm curious, when you were in the room with the person who was dying, what, what did you notice about your attention? Um, I know it was like, for me it felt like being in
2: meditation. Uh-huh. What
1: was that like? Really, um, really heartfelt. Uh-huh. So very heartfelt, yes. Where was your attention? With her. With her, with, in the situation you found yourself yeah, in? And
2: with, um, in a way with my own
3: body too. Mm-hmm. Just being
1: present for her. All right. So beautiful, grounded in your own body and attentive to your own experience and also what you found yourself in. So what you're describing to me is just basically the beauty of mindfulness. You're describing the beauty of the pleasure, actually, of paying attention. Even when what we're paying attention to sometimes is unpleasant, the process of paying attention, that that, um, absorption, we could say, is pleasant. Um, And... uh, What happens is when we step outside that environment oftentimes, what happens is the dying process is so compelling, it kind of galvanizes our attention to this moment. And this moment we feel very, very alive, actually. Very alive, even if dying is happening. And then what can happen is we step out of that situation and we re-enter, we call it the habitual world, our habitual patterns, and we fall back into those habituated patterns, sometimes, not always, and we feel a disconnection. It's a bit what I was trying to describe up here. yeah. And so that's the feeling. Like, oh, something's been lost, actually. It's and, very
2: disoriented.
1: Uh, you know? It is a little disorienting. That's a good way to say it. It feels a little disorienting. Both are a little disorienting. The, the, the galvanized attention is a little disorienting to our habitual life and vice versa. Um, I think it's really important that um, we give ourselves a break here and that we don't think of these things as being steady, continuous, I will always be calm. I will always be Buddhist, you know? Mm-hmm. Nonsense. You know, look at the world. It's in constant flux. And big surprise, your mind is going to be in constant flux too. Now, we get better at re- pulling recovery. We get better at recalling ourselves back. I
3: did this
1: more often. <laughs> yeah, well, and th- we can do that for ourselves. And situations will call us back. Both will do it. Yeah. Um, was there anything happening in the room... <laughs> can I say this did you have any other um, tools or capacities in the room than you had when you walked outside the room
2: no I mean no
3: I, I, I brought that room with me Yes. I felt like uh-huh. and that's what felt awkward for me was like I'm this like vulnerable, open, attentive thing, you know, yes. and and the world was like, you know, not
1: there with me. Well, the world won't always respond, of course, according to our preferences, but um, I sure wish it would sometimes.
3: I if there were any like, particular yeah. things
1: that, that you know? Um, you know, well, when I teach meditation retreats quite a lot, and so um, students always ask this question about going home, and um, I always tell them to stop and have a cappuccino, you know? And and what I mean by that is that they should interact with people in a more anonymous environment before they go back and try and interact with their families because it'll go a lot better, first of all, if they practice with somebody else. Um, But also to really be able to let things be where they are. In other words, don't try and drag this experience with you. It'll just be cumbersome. You can bring the process of mindfulness with you. But this experience stays here. Is that okay? Is that enough? That's great. Okay.
2: Yes, please. Well, I just wanted to add, um, I was a chaplain in a hospital setting, Uh and many of the patients were uh, in the process of dying. Uh Um, And one of the practices that really helped... Excuse me. helped, was at, upon entering into that space mm-hmm. to do a tiny little personal ritual mm-hmm. that reminds you that of what's what's about to occur.
3: Mm, beautiful.
2: And um, sometimes people would use the you know those dope, uh, dispensers for mm-hmm. and they would use that mm-hmm. little they would just bring their mindfulness at that time. Different people used different things. What did you do? What did I do? Yeah. Um, I would practice a healing touch Uh um, practice, Uh and so I I would approach the person's bed, and depending on what our interaction was, very subtly, I would just take up that practice pose. Uh When I did that, then I remembered. Beautiful.
1: Beautiful.
2: Upon leaving some tiny personal ritual like that, mm-hmm. just closing your hands down mm-hmm. or washing your hands again, or you know when you touch the door now, that's the reminder that I'm leaving this sacred space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that helps.
1: And, and entering a new one. Yes.
2: It kind of helps kind of close that yes. so that you carry it with you in a different way. Mm-hmm. I can
1: yeah, that's a lovely. That's, thank you. That's a lovely thing to share. Uh, you know, um, I, I, what, what begins to happen, I think, and it sounds like maybe this happened for you in your life, too, that, you know, uh, doing the work and someone's dying or not dying or this is a sacred room or not a sacred room, it all starts to fade after a while, you know. It's just you walk through your life this way. This is the way it is, you know, and you realize you're always stepping across thresholds. You're always always crossing such, such thresholds, You know, in Zen practice, when you go into the zendo, the meditation hall, you step in with your foot. And uh, what you do is you look and you see where are the hinges on the door. And you step in with your foot on where the hinges are. Now, this could be considered OCD. (laughs) Or uh, it could be a practice of mindfulness. You decide. (laughs) I guess it depends what intention we bring to it. So I do that. That's one of the things I do. It's very silent doesn't require much, just reminds me, just brings me home again, and that's really the home to myself, you know, not to some special state, just home to myself, and then now I'm here, you know, it's like I didn't leave myself out in the car, I'm actually here with this person, I'm not stuck in the last patient's encounter, I'm here, and now I'm available to you, and um, that's all we need to get started, yeah, one of us to be available, and that, that's enough. Anything else on your hearts and minds, please?
3: I was just, just sort of struck that I know to die, or something. I guess this is a great mystery. There's not any words for it, but the, the being and the not being, sort of the up till the moment of death, no matter what they're they're they and then they're, yeah. they're not. And so it's like, to me, it's like the the realest real there is. You know, I mean, you could have some kind of conception or something, but then there's. There's a before and there's an after that moment. And I think something you were talking about, and then, you know, going back into the world, and of course the world hasn't really noticed this. You know, (laughs) this thing that's been so momentous, you know, on a personal level. And, um, but just being really kind of in awe of that mystery and maybe, I I feel like we're so, we so try to make meaning out
1: of it. Oh, we are meaning-making machines. We just are churning it out all the time. So I appreciate your using that phrase, the awe of that mystery. I think that's the right word, awe, wonder. Great curiosity. And like, what is this that I'm encountering, you know? Not what does it mean, what is it? How do I know it directly? So may I ask you, it sounds like you've been with some people uh, who have died and maybe been with them after they've died. Okay. Do you remember sitting with them after they died? Yes. Yes. And what was that experience like?
3: Well, I have two certain, what, a recent experience brought back, elder experience with my sister. And actually, she died at home, and then my mother and I washed her body. Uh-huh. And so, I was very... Um, and then my dog, I had to have euthanized last week. Uh-huh. And, and I wasn't really interested in, you know, her ashes or anything, but I was really interested in what would happen, both with my sister, and my dog. <laughs> I don't mean to equate the all but what was going to happen to her body? Yeah. You know.
1: So, what did you notice with your sister?
3: With my sister, um, well, she cooled over time. Her skin lost yes. all its elasticity, yes. Yes. and so it was very, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we were washing her, and then also just being with my mother, and mm-hmm. I still felt very connected with her on it, her body, but mm-hmm. I knew that it wasn't her yet, and yet my, there's no way for me, I don't feel like, to humanly sort of comprehend except for me by touch, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that was like a, a, I know you said like the letting go or something, but mm-hmm. you know, definitely there's a huge difference, mm-hmm. and um
1: so just stay there for a second, just, just so so is it, so what's the, you know, meditation, one of the things we talk about sometimes is that even when a moment's past is a remainder, there's something that feels like still there. What did you feel with your sister? i uh,
3: wonder. Uh, you know, an immense curiosity. I mean, I didn't, and, uh, uh, You know, so I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't till later and reflecting in the sad. I mean, there's the sadness before and there's yeah. great sadness after. But at the moment, it was just like wonder, I guess, or just not, not even that. Just it just was.
1: Yeah, yeah beautiful. So it might not have been so much sadness or so much emotional turmoil in that particular instant. There was just some extension of your being with her in some way. There was the love and of your relationship with her. Did you have any sense of her being there? No. No. What what was gone?
2: Uh,
3: Her. I mean, if I was to try to put words to it, I would say her her life force or whatever it is that
1: animates her. That's a very good expression, what animates her life. Very good. Yeah, I mean, for example, one of the things that we used to do at the Zen Hospice when people would die is sometimes we would, depending on their wishes, of course, we would sometimes sit with people for a matter of hours to days, even. And one of the practices I had was to bring volunteers like Steve and sit next to bodies, And and, and inevitably, we'd be sitting there and the person would be sitting next to me and, and I'd see them make this little eye movement, you know, like, to me, like, did you see that? You know? And what was happening for them is that they thought they saw the body move or the body breathe, and partly it was just that their minds couldn't really wrap around the absence, actually, because we so associate the body with all this kind of animation. It couldn't wrap our minds couldn't wrap around it really. Yeah. I thought saw my dog. Yeah, yeah. So there is. So you. So you're, what, what I want to point you to is that your capacity to notice actually. Because the body's still there, she's still there, her eyes are there, her nose are there, everything, all the things we normally take ourselves to be are there. And yet, there's something else that isn't there, or feels different, we could say. Yeah? And that's really important that you could recognize that, actually. Yeah? And, and, and I, of course, encourage people to keep relating to that. Keep relating to that. Even if it doesn't seem existent here in this body, the bump. Yeah, it is a huge mystery, and we're probably not going to resolve it today. (laughs) But uh, I think it's a good—it's a good. um, um, Let's see. One of the things that I want to um, encourage is the recognition of the joy that's part of this process, and I'm not being romantic about that. What I mean by the joy is, um, one of the characteristics of joy is a kind of curiosity. It's one of the ways joy expresses itself, this kind of wonder that you're speaking of. You know, um, and for me, um, one of the ways that this joy expresses itself in our life, our everyday life, is its playfulness, actually. Watch children play. They don't play for a purpose. They just play for the sake of doing it. And trying to get somewhere with their play. Yeah? And so there's this tremendous curiosity that's there, that lives in us, and we can evoke that. And, and, and it's important to bring it to this process of yeah, dying. That speaks
3: to me, because that's what I, I was just so curious. Yeah, I, mean, I see that. Beyond everything, because it's like, wow, and that's going to happen to me, too.
1: Yes, yeah. what is this? What is this? How can I know it intimately, directly, immediately? Not necessarily cognitively good that you brought that forward, yeah. You know, when you watch a baby, I mean, I, I, I like in your experience and what you're saying with your sister too, when my son was born, he was born at home, you know? And I remember, you know, catching him and then I had to go outside to get some wood for the wood stove and I, when I went outside, it was a suddenly a very big world. And everything was very alive, like I could have been on drugs, you know, but I wasn't. It was just, I was, I was in contact with this kind of aliveness. And the same obviously happens near the end of life, too, in these two passages. We see this, because our attention is so pulled into this moment, and we feel this aliveness. Watch babies put things in their mouth. Yeah? I mean, kids do this, right? Everything. Dirt, sticks, breasts, whatever. Put in their mouth. They don't do it because they're hungry. Sometimes they do. They do it to know it. to Know it directly. We have more, you know, uh, sensors in our mouth than we have any place in our body, you know and so when children put things in their mouth to know it to know it directly and intimately and this is how we can enter into this process not through some process of meaning making but to know directly and to really trust what you come to know really trust <coughs> we have to stop I think do you want to say some words of closing before we do it words of closing it'll be, all f- it'll be fine <laughs> <laughs>